I'm Kimberly C. Paul. As I travel throughout each state, I realize that death is just a moment. It is how we live until that moment that matters. Finding connection with friends, family, and complete strangers. Journey with me. This is the Live Well, Die Well Tour. I am so excited to be talking to you, Katie. I've followed you through a friend of ours, Claire Bidwell-Smith, who's also an author, and I'm just thrilled to be uh, talking to you today on Death by Design Podcast. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here, and it's so great to talk with you. So we have a lot of things in common, you and me. Uh, We both both (laughs) left the corporate world, and we were searching for something. I know what I was searching for, but what were you searching for? (laughs) You know, I'm not sure I could have articulated at the time what I was searching for. Uh, I loved my career so much. Um, It became my entire identity, living in New York, working at beauty and fashion magazines um, throughout my 20s. And at the time, I... I left, I said, I had, was a little bit burned out. It had been about 15 years of, of working at that point. I needed a break. I really wanted to travel more, and there just wasn't the space to do that um, within the confines of the job. Um, I had signed up for my first writing workshop. I wanted to try writing. And all of those things were, were true, but it wasn't really a complete story. I look back at it now, and I can see kind of this slow dismantling of that identity I moved to LA uh, in 2010, which was taking a step back away from an industry that was centered in New York. I went through a really painful breakup. Um, I sort of stumbled into a yoga class in tears after that and met um, a yoga teacher and writer who became a friend, uh, Jen Pasteloff, who has a book coming out um, in June of this year, um, who encouraged me to start writing and also to start sharing some of that writing, which eventually became a blog that I worked on for a couple of years. Which has the coolest name, by the way. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Confessions of an Imperfect Life. That was... Equals me. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. And it was so shocking to me that people were connecting with imperfection. It was not how I had lived my life. It was not how I understood the world to be. I thought you had to, if not be perfect, you had to look perfect. And and certainly the beauty fashion industry does not, does not help that, uh, that notion. Um, and so it was, it was baffling that, that people were actually connecting to something that I was saying, here's, here's some things about me that I haven't shared, that I haven't let the world see, or that I thought I hadn't let the world see. And so when I look back on it now, I think, I really was searching for myself. I was looking for this person who had gotten lost along the way in trying to look apart. Um, I had been a musician um, growing up. I had even gone to to college initially for for music. I had been a reader and really this sensitive soul. And all of that had gotten kind of covered up in the corporate world of you know, what I thought it meant to be, Hmm. to be successful in that world. And I thought it meant you couldn't show any of your, any of your flaws. They had to be hidden. They had to be uh, kind of overridden. Um, And it was so, it was so eye-opening to learn that, that what connected me to people was the opposite of that. Isn't that amazing how that happens? (laughs) It shocked me. (laughs) Yeah. And and you kind of scratch your head like, you know, wow. Um, But that is exactly why I feel connected to you, Um, sharing uh, some of the the things that sometimes aren't pretty, 
but we do tend to hide that. And what amazed me about some of your writing was 2014 sort of changed who you are yeah, as well yeah. because you you left your career but there were unexpected losses that occurred um back to back right so tell me a little bit about that sure. um cuz this was your sister and your father i mean some big big people yeah <laughs> um close people yeah so i you know i left um i left the job in august i immediately went up to um Provincetown to to my first ever writing workshop, which you know at the time was the most terrifying thing I could have imagined. Um, I'd written this fictional story about a fictional family that happened to look a lot like my family. There were two children, you know, two girls, uh, a mother and a father. Uh, they lived in suburban New Jersey, um, and they were um, struggling through some of the issues that I that our family had struggled through. Although I don't think at the time I would have said I'm not writing about my family. <laughs> This isn't about my family. Um, but in the story, the fictional younger sister was gone. And the narrator was trying to trace back the earlier days of the relationship to see where things had gone wrong for, for her and for them. And so that was um, sort of a, a, an odd coincidence of, uh, you know, what I was, I guess, working through um, subconsciously that was coming out onto the page uh, even before anything happened. Um, I was uh, beginning to travel. I, I did go on some of those trips that I said that I, you know, wanted to leave the workforce to travel. I went to Eastern Europe. Uh, I went to a writing workshop on Orcas Island. Um, I went to Argentina, and I also froze my eggs um, in that month, uh, the second month after being out of out of work, which was something that was a lot easier to do when I wasn't going to a full time job. So, wow, yeah, it was it was a lot. It was a a really transformative time. And I was on the go a lot and my body was going through a lot between the travel and the hormones. Um, and so I went to Argentina at the beginning of uh, early in November of 2014. And, um, it was a very unsettling trip. I did not feel, it just didn't feel in my body. I didn't feel, I, I started to feel like maybe I'd made a mistake. What was I doing? How did I take off from this life that I had lived. And I got home and I was on the phone with my mom the day that I, that I came back into town. I had taken a red eye back. So I was exhausted. And my dad, uh, my dad called while I was on the phone with my mom and I ignored the call because I figured I would just call him back, but he called her right after. And, and that was a little unusual. Uh, they pretty much only talked. My parents got divorced, um, right when I graduated college. So they had been divorced for almost 15 years at that point. And, um, my mom said, should I, should I get it? Your dad's calling. I said, yeah, I'll go talk to him. And, um, when she came back, it was about nine minutes later, according to the timer on my phone that I was watching and starting to think like, this is weird. Did she forget <laughs> right. about me? What's going on? And she came back on. And the first thing she said in this kind of strangled voice was Kelly's dead. <gasps> And this is your sister. And this is my sister. So she was 32. I was 36 at the time. Um, and we had been estranged for a little over a year at that time. Um, so it immediately felt like it divided my life into a before and after. Mm. And I knew in the second she said that sentence and she said it twice in a row, uh, nothing would ever be the same again. It wouldn't be for family and it wouldn't be for me. Wow. And so working through, and it was unexpected, um, and my sister and I had had a kind of long, challenged relationship. We were sort of just far enough apart in age that we weren't really ever peers. We were almost never in school together. Um, we had very different sets of friends. Um, she was 
this lovely, vivacious, charming, beautiful person. Um, she was a healer. She worked in, she worked at a, a hospital. She was a medical assistant. She was described by people as an angel. She really was the first person when she saw someone in a crisis to go right into the crisis. She became an EMT because she wanted to help people. Um, but unfortunately she had her own struggles that she that she was working through, you know, up until the point that she died and she wasn't able to overcome all of them. Um, and so it was both completely unexpected and also almost felt like, yeah, this was what was going to happen. Mm. Um, and so wrestling with my own guilt over, over what responsibility I had to our relationship and to its demise and to the fact that we never were able to, um, to really clear the air. We had emailed, um, my last email to her was about 10 days before she died and we had been trying to set up time to meet. We knew we were going to be home at Christmas that year. Um, we were not going to be together at Thanksgiving. I was uh, due to be traveling. And uh, my last emailed words to her were, have a good Thanksgiving with dad. Um, because she was going to be flying to, to see him. And, um, and I look back and I think, oh, I, I couldn't muster up the, the warmth and I couldn't say to her, I know we're struggling, but I love you. You're my sister and you're always going to be my sister. And it's probably my biggest regret was that we were never able to come to, come to a better place. Mm. And is that does that haunt you, or have you come to terms with that? I, I think I'm coming closer to the terms with that. It really haunted me in the, in the beginning. Um, I really, really struggled with how unsettled we had been, how we had both kind of put a toe into a reconciliation uh, or a reckoning. Um, I really don't know. I don't know how that would have gone. I can't, I can imagine it a hundred different ways, but we were so different. She was still very much in the struggle of, um, she had struggled with an eating disorder for decades. Um, she had struggled with addiction. She had um, been diagnosed as borderline personality disorder. Um, and I, there were just so many factors that made our relationship so difficult to be on the same page about and to be, to be honest with each other and to kind of move forward with an honesty that I, that I like to think she was working toward um, when we did try to, to reconnect and I was traveling and the dates that I offered to her didn't line up with her work schedule. The dates that she offered to me, I just wasn't going to be in town. And so I was haunted by this idea that, I hadn't provided enough for her, enough love, enough opportunity for her to be able to um, to tell me the things that she that she was had been holding for so long from me. Um, I, you know, I, I look back at it a little bit more with a little bit more distance now and think, well, the dates that she had proposed were were in fact after she died anyway. They were that week, uh, and she died on a Monday night, so we were never going to meet on Wednesday. Even if even if we had set the meeting up for Wednesday, um, so coming having a little bit of distance and looking back at it now, I think I've I've come a little bit more to terms. I'm not sure I'm ever going to be a hundred percent okay with my own behavior with um, with not do, feeling like I could have done more. Mm. Um, but it but work, writing writing about it has made made a big difference in understanding it and understanding the limitations that we both had at, at forming a, a better relationship. Wow. And, and, you know, I, 
people, a lot of people ask me, you know, my boyfriend died in, at 30 and mm-hmm. the story behind that. And, and they're, you know, some of my friends are like, well, you know, when are you going to find closure with that? And what they don't understand is when, when you lose someone of this magnitude, your sister, there, you, there is no closure. No. You know, there's just how do we learn to live well with right. this shadow of grief? Um, right. and unresolved feelings. Um, how do we, how do we take that and, and, and teach ourselves, uh, other things? Um, so, wow. But not only did you lose your sister, your father. Yeah, that, um, and that was, that was really unexpected in a way that I <clears throat> never could have, uh, seen coming, um, three, three months in a day after I got the call, um, from my mom via my dad that, um, that my sister had died. I got a six o'clock in the morning, LA uh, voicemail from my stepmother saying, call me when you get this. And you never want to get a six in the morning voicemail from your stepmother. Um, and I knew something and, um, and I called her back as soon as I woke up and she said, don't worry, but we are, um, I'm following the ambulance to the hospital right now. Your dad's had a heart attack. He had had a heart episode, um, maybe, maybe 10 years before that. Uh, and a similar early morning phone call, uh, had come in from my stepmother, but, um, don't, I don't want you to panic. He's stable. I will call you when we get to the hospital. We know what's happening. Um, she was so calm and I, I give her so much credit because I actually didn't really panic because she was so calm. I thought, well, she wouldn't be this calm if this were really serious. I come to learn when I, by the time I got back to New Jersey and, and got to the hospital that had he been having a heart attack, his EKG was such that the doctor said he would not have survived the hospital ride, the, the ride to the hospital. He wow. was, his heart was so taxed that if it had been a heart attack, he would not, it was, it would have been fatal for sure. They could not have, have saved him. Um, but it turns out it was not. And they, they did find that pretty quickly that it wasn't um, once he got to the ICU. And what it was, was a pulmonary embolism as well as um, some blood clots in his leg. And he had been recently traveling and he wasn't in the best health, um, but he was 65 and um, and there was no reason to think that that something like this would happen. And so I flew back. Uh, I took a red eye back on uh, overnight. And that's, that is where it's very hard to be a six-hour plane ride away from your immediate family members when when you're dealing with these kind of um, crises. And I went to the hospital and he was okay in my mind. Um, I look now at a picture he had sent me um, from the hospital that I got, I think right before I took off on the plane or I received it actually when I landed on the plane, because I was afraid to pick up any text messages before uh, I got on the plane. I just thought I, if anything has happened, I don't want to know about it until I get there. Let's put this off as, as much as we possibly can. Um, and I landed and, and turned my phone on and the, and the picture was there that he had sent in his hospital gown. And I, I, at the time I thought, okay, he's okay. He's there. He's smiling in this picture. I look at the picture now and I think, oh, he was sick. Oh, this, this isn't good. He does not look good. Uh, and he was in the ICU for, um, for, for four days. And on that Monday, um, he had been just moved down to the step-down ICU because he was doing well and they were doing a ton of tests and, um, and everything. They had done a procedure to try to break up uh, some of the clot in his lungs and they felt that it was not as successful as they would have liked it to have been. And I got to spend some time alone with him that afternoon um, and 
my stepmother had to run some errands. She can't rush to go to work. And she came back, uh, I think like five o'clock in the evening. I said, okay, I love you. I'll see you tomorrow. I'll be back first thing in the morning. She was going to go. She's a teacher. She was going to go to school the next day and I was going to stay, uh, and, and be with him during the day while she was at school. And I left and I went home and I had dinner with my mom and my stepfather. And at nine 11 that night, the phone rang and it was the first time in four days that my stepmother was almost incoherent. And she said, come back. They're working on him. He, he lost consciousness. And I rushed and put clothes on. I, I, I don't even know what I threw on. I was sort of in a panic. And um, it was the first time I really thought he's not going to make it. Uh, and we drove to the hospital and, um, we waited in the, in the waiting room. The, the, it was just my stepmother, my mother and I in the waiting room and they had windows to the hallway where the doctor and the nurse, uh, after maybe about 15, 20 minutes, the doctor and the nurse came walking down the hallway toward the room. And I looked and I tried to make eye contact with the nurse and she looked away and I thought, oh, and the doctor came in and said, we worked on him and um, he expired. And that was his terminology for it, which even in the moment seemed so completely ridiculous. Um, and my, my uncle, who was my dad's business partner, arrived right after that and, and, and saw us really hysterical and um, just never really allowed myself to imagine that, that he wouldn't pull through. Right. Um, because it was just too much to think three months and, and – three, five days later that, that he could be gone also. Um, I mean, I really had, uh, of my immediate family, I had my mom, my dad, my sister, and my grandfather. And within a year, I just had my mom. Uh, my grandfather unfortunately died um, about seven months after that. So how, how in the world can anyone endure one of these losses? And then you had three almost back to back. I mean, how, how did you survive this? I mean, I think the it really was the only it really was the only option. You either, I guess, survive or you don't. And there, it really wasn't an option for me not to. I was so so fortunate. Uh, I don't believe that things happen for a reason, uh, but I do believe there are serendipitous there's serendipitous timing around the people who come into your life. And I was so so lucky to have started on this a little bit. I mean, I was so new in the writing space, but I was so fortunate to have found some people really, really early on before even, uh, before these losses even occurred, who kind of served as guides through it, who had gone through really deep losses and had emerged from them and had continued their lives and built beautiful lives. And whereas my impulse, I think, was maybe to just try to flee or to escape I had people to bring me back to myself and to bring me back in a safe place uh, and in a, in a safe way. And so, you know, having having a writing mentor, um, Danny Shapiro, who I met so you know so close to when this all happened, who showed me how to get through uh, how to get through these these early days of grief. She and her husband Michael Marin have really stepped up in a way that they didn't have to do. I mean, we were, I barely knew her at the time. She didn't have to step into that role. She could have just been a, a teacher I took a writing class with. And instead she became a mentor and she became um, a, a, a system of support for me through this, uh, as did some of these other writers. When you take a memoir class, and I think it, it wasn't specifically a memoir class that I was taking, and as, as I thought I was writing fiction, um, but <laughs> I, I, I've learned that so many of those, of those fiction writers were also working through their own losses. And it was people who were 
not as afraid that weren't able to shy away from the loss. There was no escaping it. It was a part of them. It was something that they needed to explore and write about and talk about. And to have a community that I had just walked into, um, you mentioned Claire. I had, you know, I met Claire Mm. only about a month before my sister died. I had read her beautiful memoir. Yeah, it was was really close. Um, I'd read her beautiful memoir, Rules of Inheritance. I had fallen in love with it. Um, Was excited to meet with her. We lived um, across Santa Monica from each other. So we we were basically neighbors. Um, But I wasn't thinking at all about loss when I started a, a friendship with her. And then so soon after, it was like, boom, boom, these losses back to back. But having having a grief therapist become one of your closest friends is really, really helpful. It turns out in the grief process. And there were so many times where she would say, you know, I'm going to call you right now. We would be texting and she would say, I'm going to call you. Uh, what you're feeling is normal. This anxiety that you're feeling. And of course she wrote a whole book about anxiety uh, being the missing stage of grief. This is all normal. This, yes, of course. And she just was able to, offer me space to experience everything I was experiencing and then also offer me a friendship that was filled with so much joy and that that was okay too that if that if I were laughing about something or if I were really happy about something that that could coexist with with the loneliness and the sorrow um and so our our friendship became as much defined by by tears as it was by laughter um and and everything was okay (laughs) Yeah. I mean, don't you find when you can relate to someone through grief, there's something magical about. Oh, yeah. um, I can't really explain it, but I'm finding, especially being on the road with this tour, you know, people telling their stories and they've heard my story. And it's this it's almost acceptance right where you're at. Yes. Right there. And it's just beautiful. Yeah. Um, So, I mean, are you finding that writing um, has has helped you work through your grief traveling too? I mean, so how? Oh, absolutely. Because that's what what I've found is writing about it has really helped me grieve for it. Yeah, and cry. Yeah, absolutely. So talk to me about your experience. Sure. So the, I mean, the travel has certainly helped as well, and I think the travel tied into the writing certainly. Um, getting away from my everyday life in the really early days, I, I went to Australia. Um, gosh, I think about a week after my sister's funeral. And it was, I did think for a minute, maybe I shouldn't be going on this trip. And uh, my mom was pretty insistent that I continue to to be able to live my life. And I'm really fortunate that she was um, so, so tuned into knowing more what would be good for me than I really knew what would be good for me. Um, having the space to be away from the day-to-day and to um, be able to to be in beauty again and to to be able to see things that were beautiful and to experiencing them it really made the the early days when that when i could have been just in the shock of it it helped to um it helped to break through some of that shock for me um i also found that and i'm, I'm guessing you have found this as well i mean culturally there's, there's so many places that you can go in the world where people are so much more accepting of and, and able to talk about grief and about loss. Um, I was in Guatemala about two months after Kelly died, and it was the first place that someone said, do you have siblings? And she asked me in Spanish, do you have any siblings? And I had to say for the first time to someone I didn't know, I had a sister, she, she died. Uh, and 
And there was no discomfort. There was no shifting of eye contact. There was just meeting me exactly in that moment by this woman who, God, had probably seen way worse loss than I will ever know, um, you know, in rural Guatemala and just nodding at me. Yes. Okay. Yes, you've lost a sister. There wasn't even the I'm so sorry. It was just an acknowledgement that people die. People we love die. Um, And it was really, in a way, shocking and so comforting okay, this is the reaction and it's not trying to fix it. And it's not, and, and obviously most people really mean well when they want to try to talk to you about loss and they want to, um, to connect with you and to offer something that is, is of solace or that is of help. Um, and this woman just absorbed it. And I, I hadn't had that experience with anyone at that point. When people say, I'm sorry for your loss, I, I I find myself saying don't be. Yeah. Um because I would do it all over again. Yeah. Um you know it's like it, I I don't want someone to feel sorry for me. I want them to know that this person was in my life and they made an impact and yes they died. Um but I'm not sorry about that. Right. Um it's it's just really a weird thing to answer to like what do you do um but this is this is interesting you know i heard you were writing a book um your own i believe it or not a true story <laughs> i am i started uh you know I, I put aside that failed fictional story uh, really tried to keep it going even after kelly died um i was committed to it i had written 120 pages of it i'd never written that much of anything before so i thought this oh. is this isn't going anywhere i'm keeping this book uh and it became very apparent uh in the sort of breakdown after uh, my dad died no this isn't working and i was with the brilliant writer Jim Shepard at uh, the Sirenland Writers Conference, which is the most wonderful writing conference I could have ever uh, imagined being able to be allowed to go to that uh, that Danny Shapiro and Michael Marin, her husband, and uh, Hannah Tinty, the founder of One Story, started in Positano, Italy. And I was there a month after my dad's death. And Jim Shepard said to me, so, you know, how, how you doing with the writing? And I burst into tears at the cocktail party, as, as one oh. does in the early <laughs> stages of, oh. of, of grief. Uh, because, and I started babbling to him, I don't know, I don't know what I'm writing, and this doesn't make sense, and I can't do it. And I just have these scenes that run through my head when I'm in the shower or when I'm trying to sleep, and I don't, but they don't, they're not fictional, and I don't know how they fit, and what do I do? And he's like, oh, okay okay, stop. This is all fine. <laughs> yeah. You have scenes that you want to write, write them. Don't worry about what they fit into. Don't worry about how they fit with what you're already doing. Don't worry about the book that you think you're writing. Write down the scenes that you are compelled to write and you're going to be leaps ahead of other people who are not compelled to write these these scenes. And I was like, oh, wow. oh, what great advice. Wow. Well, and, and it's so simple. And it's probably something that had been said to me by Danny and by other teachers hundred times, but it was just hitting me at the exact moment that I could hear it and hear mm. it in a way that made that made it okay and made it it gave me the permission to to do it. And so on the plane the next morning out of Italy, I started writing it on my phone. Uh, oh, and wow. by the time I got to my layover in London, I thought, oh well, let's make write this down on, on, on a Word document. And I think it was about five pages at that point uh, that I had just typed into my phone. And those scenes became the earliest scenes of the memoir that um, that I started working on immediately after. And I, almost in a sort of fugue state, the bulk of the book came out within about six months, uh, kind of poured out uh, with, with a lot of 
torture, as, as writing can sometimes be along the way, but really um, almost catching up to real time in the, in the writing of it. And I have very immediately thought this book is about a, a year. It's going to be about the year. It's going to be my year of unmagical thinking as I was trying to <laughs> uh, take on uh, Joan Didion's theme. Um, <laughs> and, and I returned to that book more than once. I actually, I had read the book before Kelly died. I then read it pretty soon after my dad died and I was really angry at it because um, Didion is, 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 she's Didion. She's, you know, she's a master. uh, And she has a a coolness to her that I could not imagine ever, ever having. And it was only when I read it a third time, um, maybe two or two or three years after that, that I was able to look at it and say, Oh, Oh, you had just the tiniest bit of distance when you wrote this. That's where the coolness came from. I can't find this coolness when I'm three months from my dad dying. It's never going to, it's, it was so hot. It was so, um, it was so core to what I was going through and it was so filled with every emotion that I was going through. There was no distance. There was no coolness. And so I did, I wasn't mad at Didion anymore, which was very nice. (laughs) (laughs) But Uh, it helped you though, just to write about those emotions. Oh, it did. It, It needed to go somewhere. And I'm very happy that it came out on the page and not to all of my loved ones. Um, but, um, but it also meant that the memoir kind of, once the full draft had been finished, really needed to go in a drawer for a bit. And so I, I think I finished it, uh, maybe in the end of 2017 and then I put it away for about a year. Um, wow. and I didn't, uh, I mean, seven, eight months, didn't look at it, didn't think about it, started working on a novel, uh, thought, let me do something totally different, uh, which of course is about sisters and, uh, someone dies right. <laughs> in, the, in the way of writing about our obsessions. Um, but it, it was a necessary break and a necessary distance. And I think I'm just now getting close to the point. Uh, over a year later where I think I could take that book out and I think I might be able to figure it out. It might have unlocked for me now, um, having a little bit of that necessary um, space from it and allowing it to kind of marinate in that. Um, sure. Uh, so so when, do you have a working title? I, or are you still thinking about I'm it? I'm still thinking about it. I, I've had a working title for, for a while, um, but I don't know if that's what's going to ultimately be the title. Gotcha. So, um, And I don't know when, when it'll be finished. I don't know when I'll be <laughs> able to do anything with it. I start, um, I start grad come school in, in um, about four months, uh, five, three months. I start grad school in fiction. So I will be kind of focusing on the novel for a bit. I'd love to spend the summer working on the memoir and potentially getting it to a, a good enough place that I can bring it out to, uh, to submit it for publication, but I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to rush it. Um, I did want to rush it in the beginning. I really wanted to rush it. I wanted to get it out. I wanted it to be done. I wanted it to be public. I wanted to have it out there, uh, in the way that, you know, blogging is so immediate and the gratification is so immediate with the, with the the connection that you make with the people who have read your work. And so I wanted that. I wanted people to know everything I had gone through and I wanted them to know everything I had felt. And I wanted to have that echoed back at me from other people because I wanted to feel less alone with it. Uh, and I'm very, very, very fortunate that I have a number of, uh, very smart, um, and writing teachers who said, take a step back, see what's here. You don't want to put something prematurely into the world. And, and that was really the right decision to make. And so I feel like I can go back with, with cooler uh, eyes on it now and, and hopefully shape it into something that's more art than just 
all of my emotions, which could be the title. Right. Well, that's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, it's, I, I, I love your rawness. I love your, your willingness to lay it, lay it in right there on the table. And, And I think that's why I feel connected to you. Like, I, 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 I do. I feel like I've known you a long time and we've just recently connected. And And I, I do believe that it's because of how passionate you are through your writing. I, I feel that I'm not alone in my losses because of some of your writing. Oh, and, and I think, you. yeah, and I think that's, that's so important. Um, but you guys, you, I mean, first of all, I, I need to let you know, um, will you be my best friend? Yes. Um, two, can I carry your travel <laughs> bags wherever you go? No, and, but you can um, come with me and I can carry <laughs> You can bring your own travel but, bags too. Yeah. You, I just, you're, you're, oh, I can't, I mean, you're about to step on and into something really, really wonderful. And I believe that, you know, just like our friend Claire uh, Bidwell-Smith is helping so many people, I too think you are on that same path. Um, by sharing your story. Um, and I think that's what's so powerful. And just like me, you know, I, I love writing and getting lost in, in make-believe and creating stories. Um, but sometimes I can't cr- create the drama when I'm living the drama. Right. Um, you know? Right. Um, One drama at a time. <laughs> exactly. And, and I will say, you know, when I started writing, you know, a, a small part of my book, um, yeah, I, I never thought it would end up being what it is. And it, it's just amazing to see how it takes on life itself. Um, and I cannot wait to read your book. Oh, um, thank you. How do people find you? So right now, I've, I've stepped away a bit from the blogging. Uh, so my, my blog is very sadly outdated. Uh, I am most most of the time I'm spending now uh, in the world publicly is has been on Instagram. So my Instagram is Katie J Divine. Um, I'll I'll cross post things to my Facebook and to Twitter from there as well. But that's sort of where it's originating, and it's able to kind of give a little snapshot of what I'm seeing in the world, a little bit of writing, and at least keep me connected to to these wonderful people that I've met along the way. It's I'll share books that I've loved because for me the books have been uh, as much a, a help almost as the people that have come into my life. Like reading books about um, about loss and really deep loss has been has been life saving. I mean, I I really I credit that as much as I credit anybody I actually know in person. And so I want to be able to share any of those books with with the people who have helped me as well, and with the people who might need might need that same help. Yeah, well, you know, some of your recommendations are now sitting in my RV. Um, And I'm, yeah, I mean, Inheritance, um, a couple other uh, books. Um, I haven't read Claire's new book uh, about anxiety, so that's um, in there as well. So I I tell you, I feel very, very lucky to have, like you said, not only authors that I don't know, um, but authors that I do know um, that are are walking the walk with me. And and I consider you one of them. And I cannot wait... Yeah, I cannot wait until we have a glass of wine and and just uh, meet face to face. What you're doing is extraordinary and you're on a really, really cool journey and uh, an adventure. And I'm really happy to uh, be watching you blossom. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful talking with you. 
Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer.